You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast and today on the show I am joined by none other than Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson is an American astrophysicist, planetary scientist, author and science communicator. His new book Welcome to the Universe in 3D is out now and he joins me on the episode today to discuss matters such as why does time get slower when you travel through space? What do the US government UFO images tell us? Why are we so fascinated with finding alien life? Did Jeff Bezos really go to space? And so much more. It's a really fun, enjoyable episode. And credit to Neil. It is extremely relatable to anybody who has interest in these topics. You don't have to be a scientific mind to listen. I'm certainly no scientific mind. And that's how I wanted to keep this episode. So please enjoy this episode with the legendary Neil deGrasse Tyson. Well, Neil deGrasse Tyson, welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast, sir. Happy to be there. Thanks for having me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to host you on the show. And obviously your, your new book is out, Welcome to the Universe in 3D. Now, my copy, my physical copy hasn't arrived yet, but I did go through the PDF. Now, the one thing I noticed about this book or thought about this book is this book, if anything, is going to pull apart the hope for people that constellations mean anything. (laughs) Well, that should have happened centuries ago between you and me. (laughs) It shouldn't have had to have waited until the year 2022 for that to have taken place, but you're correct. Of the 65 image pairs in there, there's uh, six of those sets show you the entire sky, north and south. So the North Pole, the South Pole, and then the sky, the night sky you would see during the four seasons. And uh, this whole notion of seeing something in 3D is seeing something as it actually is in space, not just as it might just sit there in front of your nose. And so when you look at the constellations, you get to see how separated the stars are from each other in depth. And now, so now it's hard at that point, I think, to then ascribe meaning to what sleepless ancients said of these configurations of stars. And so all I say is welcome to the 21st century. Does it make you cringe a little bit when you when you hear astrology being uh, touted around? No, I don't cringe. I'm, I feel sad that our education system was insufficient. We have an education system that will graduate you from elementary school and middle school and high school and even college. And you'd walk away after college getting a degree with the robe and the hat and the ceremony. And there's still a subset of people who will wonder whether Mercury was in retrograde. So I'm thinking the education system is missing some important elements. 
some important cogs in a wheel that we're all trying to turn. That's what I think about when I hear it. I don't go chase after them. Uh, I just is too. I, life is too short. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was lucky enough to when I was growing up here in the UK. We have the great Brian Cox, who sort of translates the you know science to to public knowledge. He's that great sort of bridge between the two and. You know, I, I cert, he certainly interested me in the topic from a young age, um, and sort of translated in a way that I would be able to understand, even if I'm not, you know, as academically inclined. How important do you think it is in the world that we have figures like a, like a Brian Cox or someone to bring it to the mainstream or, or to the to the average day person? Yes. Yeah, so I I'm of two minds there. First, I think it's great. It's great. Uh, I think, as I understand it, Brian Cox is more famous for what he does in the UK than Carl Sagan ever was even in the United States. Brian Cox also having been a literal rock star for having a number one song on the charts. What was it? Things will get better. There's some Things song. Things will only get better. By Things will only get better. Right. So he's a literal rock star. Okay. Uh, and figurative rock star. So I think this is all, I mean, why I can't imagine life without it. But the other side of me says, it should never be that singular. It shouldn't require the one person who makes it all work. There should be a hundred people on that landscape. And imagine that's like saying, oh, we have this one firefighter on the other side of town and they're the best ever and they'll put out everybody's fires. Well, no, they're not. They'll put out a lot of fires. We need every... This, this ability, this talent, this receptivity needs to happen at a much deeper level than the singular talents represented by people such as Brian Cox, uh, Carl Sagan, or, or others. So I look forward to a day where you would pick among 10 people who influenced you that way, not just the one person. Because imagine life without that one person. What would that even be like? Okay, that's not a good world. All right. Now, there are a few others. There's uh, uh, Jim Kahili. Jim Kahili. Kahili. I forgot how to to spell and pronounce his name. Uh, He's another one. I think he's based at Oxford. He's a physicist. Does a lot of public um, things. Wrote books. uh, All kinds of... There's a a fellow in Italy who's written many best-selling books. And is interviewed often. And he's a physicist. So such people are out there. But sort of the singularity of what you find uh, in Brian Cox, I think society would be better off if that were common rather than singular. So what, what drew you to, to your fascination with the universe at a young age? What did it do for a young Neil deGrasse Tyson looking up at the night sky? What, what did that do for you on a personal level? Oh, well, first of all, I didn't have a night sky. All right? mm-hmm. I don't know where you grew up in London. Uh, if that's where you grew up, but I grew up in New York City. There's no sky. Wow. There's no, you know, there's light pollution. And at the time, there was air pollution, significant air smog. Uh, also, when you look up, we have a lot of tall buildings. So most sight lines, even if you're looking up, will hit a building. So in New York City, no one has a relationship with the night sky. And the only way you can attain that is a visit to your local planetarium which is what I did. I visited the Hayden Planetarium in New York City, where I now serve as director. So that's come sort of full circle there. 
But yeah, you sit down in the chair and the dim the lights and the stars come out. I've said this before, I, I thought it was a hoax. There aren't that many stars in the night sky. I know, I've looked from the Bronx. I grew up in the Bronx, one of the five counties that comprise New York City. And so I later I would see the sky as nature intended uh, from the Caribbean, from deep within Pennsylvania, far away from city lights. And even to this day on mountaintops, we have the finest telescopes in the world. And I look up and I see the canopy, this brilliant starlit canopy. And I say to myself, that reminds me of the Hayden Planetarium. <laughs> it's a sad <laughs> fact, but it's true. So that's how that, so, so it was that first encounter and I was hooked ever since I was nine years old. Yeah, that's interesting. But I'm from the, the mountainous valleys in Wales in the UK. So there's not many buildings around. I'm in a village. Okay, so you, you had a night sky your whole life. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. fantastic. Well, I'm, I spoke to um, Dr. Stuart Clark. He wrote a book called Beneath the Night about all about the night sky. And the way he put it in the book um, really resonated with me. It was this fact that when, when you look up into the night sky, you're almost, well, you are, you're looking at the same night sky that Shakespeare or any of these great people of history would have looked up at, and it, and it gives you that sort of deep, sort of powerful connection almost. Do you understand that? Does that have an effect on you in any way? Yes, it does. Maybe not as deeply as that author, mm -hmm. but de definitely. So, for example, when I got my first telescope, and then I put the telescope on the moon, I, mean, I looked through... I. I aimed the telescope at the moon, at Saturn, at Jupiter. And I was discovering these places in the solar system for the first time through a telescope. And I knew I was communing through time with Galileo, who was the first ever to see these things through a telescope. No, I'm not the first ever, but I shared in his awe in his enthusiasm, in his, in, in the reverence that he had for all that was going on in the universe. So <clears throat> for me, I get a lot more of that, not just simply by looking up at the night sky. Because by the way, the stars do shift a little bit over the centuries. I happen to know that. So it's not the exact night sky. In fact, in ancient Egypt, they had a different North Star than we have today. That's how much the Earth's axis has shifted within what we call the celestial sphere. So a lot of things are different. But uh, when I want to commune through time in that way, I read an old book written by someone 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 400 years ago. And I, use the, I try to get a book that's authentic. And occasionally you see a stain from the wax that had dripped on it when they're trying to read at night, right? And then, or you see, what we could call marginalia, where they've written and trying to help themselves understand. And then you're reminded that back then people basically had perfect penmanship. Okay, not so much today. I don't know what they do in the UK, but in the United States, people no longer know how to write letters on a page. Okay, yeah. and it's completely illegible and they can't read cursive. It's sad because they're just, you know, typing on a, in a computer. But when I want to feel 
spirit energy through time. That's what I do. Well, just a few minutes ago, you mentioned Carl Sagan, and I was watching this this older interview of, of yours a few days back where you mentioned that upon applying to college that you had this letter from Carl, you had this personal tour of his lab. So obviously that would have had a massive impact on you, but how was that gesture had an effect on the way in which you conduct yourself with young students? Oh, yeah, because he, just to catch people up in case they, uh, they've only heard it here for the first time, uh, I was applying to colleges from high school, and one of the colleges that had accepted me was Cornell, where Carl Sagan was a professor. And I was accepted to three or four other schools in addition to that. And I was still scratching my head trying to decide which school to attend. And over that time, it wasn't that long, just a few weeks, I got a letter in the mail, personal letter in the mail from Carl Sagan. From Carl Sagan. Little did I know the admissions office had sent my application to him. And my application was just dripping with the universe. And so they said, well, maybe Carl Sagan can help this along. So he sent me the note, invited me up to sh show me the lab. And I, I went, okay, it was a bus ride, a four and a half hour bus ride uh, from New York City to Cornell uh, in Ithaca, New York. And it's upstate, it gets very cold in the winter there. I went in December and it was very cold and he, he he showed me around, and then he did, I'll never forget this, he did a no-look book grab, right? So he's there at his desk, and I'm facing him, and he reaches back and just grabs a book that's on the, on the ledge, okay, and pulls it as a book he wrote. I just thought that was badass. <laughs> if you could, don't even have to look. Whatever book is there, I wrote it, okay? And he does it, and he signs it to me, uh, to Neil, future astronomer. And I still have that book, of course. And... Uh, we were done looking at the lab, and I, um, he drove me to the bus station. It looked like it was about to snow, and he said, if it snows harder and the bus can't get through, here's my phone number. You spend the night with my family, and you can leave tomorrow. I was like, whoa. I'd, who? I, he doesn't know me. We don't know each other. We only just met. Right? What accounts for this, for this invested energy? And I concluded that somewhere in there, there's a torch passing, right? I mean, if he sees me and my interest and he judges that it's real, then it's certainly worth his time to invest in me. Maybe one day I'll invest in someone else. To this day, I give time to students the way he has given time to me. Like, and I joke about this. I'll be on the phone. I'll say, Barack, yeah, I can't talk now. Uh, I'll call you back, all right? Uh, hold on a line. I got a student waiting at the door. And then I'll call back Obama later on. I, that's a slight exaggeration, but that's how I feel when I consider that impact he had on me as I brought it into my professional life. Amazing. Well, for this next question, you may have to sort of indulge me a little bit, but... So my favorite band of all time is is the band Queen. I'm not sure if you're too familiar with with Queen, um, Freddie. Enough, Queen. yeah. I mean, a popular well, band. They released this song um, called Thirty Nine, and this, it's a sort of science fiction 
tale of these volunteer explorers who leave Earth in the year 39. I don't know, that could be, you know, way in the future. But they, they go out in search of a uh, to explore this planet to sort of colonize it because the Earth is decaying. They come back and they're a year older and they're really excited to tell the Earth that they found this, you know, this new planet. We're all going to move there. They come back to find that a hundred years have passed, that their families are all gone, that the Earth is sort of this small, grey, deteriorated planet. And I never really understood the concept of it. Um, the song was written by Brian May, who is, who is an astronomer, so obviously he loves the sort of sci-fi sci tales. But I never really understood it. And, and years later, I, I heard that it was sort of playing on the theme of, of time dilation. Um, mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could maybe explain that concept to someone like myself, if that's even possible. Uh, yeah, so uh, let's remind people that the uh, Brian May, the uh, lead guitarist, right, and creative force behind Queen as we now know it, uh, uh, he has a PhD in, in astrophysics. I think it's from uh, University College London, I think. Uh, I could be wrong. If, if I'm wrong, I'm not all that wrong. It's it's uh, and that PhD he attained long after Queen was uh, long after Freddie Mercury had died. Uh, he basically went back to school. He he had a he had a a very strong interest in this. And I've met him only once, uh, and I feel like we should have had more intersections of our lives. But it makes complete sense that the storyline would have come from him, because it's one of the fundamental things you learn in beginning of modern physics and you take a class in modern physics which would be relativity and quantum physics this is physics discovered in the 20th century as opposed to the 19th century or 18th century or 17th century where the rest of classical physics was discovered so <clears throat> it, all it says is you exist in space and you exist in time well and that's not so weird to think of it that way, that you need two coordinates to localize you in this universe, a space coordinate and a time coordinate, right? So I, I don't want people to trip up on that because we have an intuitive understanding of it. For example, if I say to you, hey, uh, let's have lunch tomorrow at 12 noon. What is your next question to me? Where? Where? Okay, you knew that time alone was insufficient to establish our connecting in this universe. And by the same token, I'll say, hey, uh, I'll meet you at, at, at uh, Marty's pub. What's your next question to me? When? When? Hmm. So we know intuitively that for us to meet, we have to provide a space coordinate and a time coordinate. They are fundamentally conjoined. All right, it turns out when you travel at high speeds and other people don't, then your coordinate system changes for you at a different rate than it does for others. So, um, what's the best way example I can give <clears throat> if you travel in space your space coordinate is changing 
and other people isn't, all right? That's not so weird. Well, if you travel fast, your time coordinate is changing too. We can show the equations that require that that happen, and it's all traceable to Albert Einstein in 1905, his special theory of relativity. And we know it's real, and it works, and we have tested it. So, there is a speed and a time with which you can travel and stay away, where if you come back after one of your years, Earth could have aged 10 years, 100 years, or even 1,000 years, depending on how fast you moved. So in that sense, yes, we can go to the future, arbitrarily far into the future. We just can't, as far as we know, go into our own past. And that would be kind of dangerous if you think about it. Like suppose you prevented your parents from meeting each other. Then you wouldn't be born enough to then go back into the past to prevent your parents from meeting each other. So that makes <clears throat> one of the more fun time travel paradoxes that there is. What is it like for someone like yourself to watch a, a typical time travel movie or something like that without trying to ruin it for yourself? No, I'm, I give them space. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. You know, if as long as they put some thought into it, then I'm good with that. <clears throat> and they can make stuff up on the edges. But if you start making stuff up in the middle when we already have established science, then you don't really have me. It's lazy science fiction rather than perceptive science fiction. Plus, I'm a fan of Mark Twain's uh, edict, <clears throat> which is first get your facts straight then distort them at your leisure. That's brilliant. It says, I'll give, you, <clears throat> I'll give you room to be creative, but only after you did your homework. Yeah. I remember years ago when I was a little bit younger, I remember loving this sort of series you had on Twitter where you would almost pick apart these, these famous <laughs> favorite movies of everyone. What was your sort of favorite movie to ruin for someone? Well, I don't think, <clears throat> see, that's just a matter of perspective. I think I was enhancing, enhancing. the movies for people. That's, that's what I think I was doing. But uh, I think I got in the most trouble for commenting on the movie Gravity. Mm. This, this is brilliantly conceived and executed. And I just thought because it was so brilliant, that ought to give me the right to, or the latitude, to criticize for what they got wrong because they got so much right. So let's see if, they, let's just see if they if they get an A plus or just an A, all right? Or an A minus instead of, a B plus instead of an A minus. So, uh, so I commented on some things and then people lost their minds. Right, oh, you're ruining it for everybody. Why, blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> and I thought to myself, let's say you have a friend who's a fashion designer who knows the history of fashion and is good at it. Then you go see, a, let's say, a Jane Austen period piece from whenever her stories took place, mid-1800s, early 1800s, and a carriage rolls up <clears throat> to this big mansion, and the people get out, and the men are wearing top hats. But your friend says, nope, they would have been wearing derbies instead. That They got that wrong. That's too early by 20 years. I mean, I'm making this up, but you get the sense of this. You would say, hey, you know your stuff. You'd be impressed with that person, wouldn't you? And 
it, here in the United States, I assume elsewhere, but especially in the United States, we have car experts who know every make and model of every manufacturer every year. And then maybe there's some period piece that takes place in 1958 and parked on the street is a 1962 Chevrolet Bel Air. They'll say, nope, that, that design wasn't out yet. Their set person, they didn't do it right. You say, hey, you're good. They're not kicked out of the theater. They are praised for their expertise and their insight. And so when I do the same thing, people say, get out of here. And I just want the same love that people give these other people. That's all I want. Um, so, uh, so gravity, I mentioned a dozen things that were suspiciously lazy, given how much effort was put into everything else. But actually, it's probably not the most famous. The most famous, I'd say, is the sky over the sinking Titanic. I made a big deal of that to, to James Cameron, and I didn't get any reply for like 10 years. I was writing to his agent, to the theater company, I mean, the movie company. And I, and I finally bumped into him, and I explained it to him person to person. And you know what he said? Hmm. He said, last I checked worldwide, Titanic has grossed more than a billion dollars. Imagine how much more it would have grossed had I used the correct sky. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Time for me to just go home. Okay. Uh, but sure enough, within weeks of that, I got a phone call from his production company and they said, we are making a director's cut with, with an IMAX release and we are adding footage. And, he, and James Cameron tells me that you have, he, speaking to me, tells me that you have a sky that he can use. And I said, whoa, that's classy. Okay. So uh, rather than beg forgiveness for what had happened before, he's going to fix what he does in the future. That's fine. And so I supplied him with the sky that he could use in all of these vantage points as you, as you look around the sinking ship. So uh, that one made the news and everybody was talking about it. Yeah. So just for a bit of context then, just, just quickly, what was wrong with the sky that we had to change it? Well, so holding aside... Well, we know the longitude and the latitude and the day, date, and time the Titanic sank. So there's only one sky above the Titanic that they should have shown. It was not only the wrong sky, it was a lazy sky. Because the stars on the left half of the image were a mirror reflection of the stars on the right half of the image. And I don't have tolerance for that. By the way, if it was a low-budget movie... And that's all you could do? Fine. I'd say nothing of it. But I remember when that movie was marketed. James Cameron discovers Titanic at the bottom of the ocean, gets footage, and accurately recreates the staterooms, the wall sconces, the china patterns, every of the of the of the plates. Everything was recreated in meticulous detail. Except for the night sky. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah, I think um, one I remember enjoying was you pointing out, I think it was you that pointed out that obviously Star Wars, the film, has got all these great visual effects. It's got these great sounds, these massive explosions, these laser sounds. But in a reality, Star Wars would be 
a very quiet film. Yeah, but just be silent movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're out in, yeah, it's just now that one. I you know I've stopped arguing about that one yeah. because they want the sound. They need the sound. Sound is an uh, it adds an emotional dimension to what you're seeing as people chase each other in space. So, yeah. Well, when I mentioned you were coming on the show on our newsletter, I had about the same question a million times, but I'm not going to ask it because everyone asks you about alien life. But what I will ask is I'll spin it a little bit. Wait, if a million people ask you and now you're not going to ask it? What? <laughs> okay, go on. It's your show. It's um, your show. Let the record show that I was ready to answer that question, all of your million people out there, and, and your host told me no. Okay, go. <laughs> Maybe we'll get it. But what I'd like to spin it is why do you think that we as humans are so fascinated with trying to confirm whether there is alien life. I think it has to do with, with what goes on inside of us when we look up. I mean, think about it. the history of most religions. Uh, there's some interesting exceptions, though, but most religions place their gods up on high, you know, if not in the sky and the clouds or, or just above, uh, then on mountaintops, you know, places that are that are um, high above where you are, okay? And not only that, in the Bible, many of the most holy places described and where things happened, happened on mountaintops, okay? Noah landed on a mountaintop, Mount Ararat. Uh, Moses got the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, right? He didn't go to a valley to get the Ten Commandments. He went to a mountain. Uh, Jesus gave his most famous sermon on the mount, okay? And I think it was the Mount of Olives. Uh, I forgot the name of it. But anyhow, you, so by looking up, all right. Now that we know that up means there are stars that may have, that do have planets, and we're life on a planet, the idea that looking up, that the heavens might not only contain gods, but other life forms. So what I wonder is whether the most avid UFO enthusiasts are also religious. Because I'm betting that they're not, but the UFOs are fulfilling that same role within their psycho-emotional state. And in fact, there's an entire branch of UFO enthusiasts who are sure, the alien enthusiasts, who are sure that humans were placed here by these set of aliens. And we're just their playthings or we're their experiment or we're their zoo. So all of this effort to look up and say, there are people up there who are in charge of us who could kill us at, if they wanted to, um, so maybe we should be nice to them. It feels a lot like what people do when they describe their religions. It, fe it feels a lot like that. And of course, it's not exactly the same, but it, you're looking up and there's something there that may help you or may, its wrath may uh, teach you a lesson. Sounds yeah. an awful lot like the Judeo-Christian God. Well, obviously, with it becoming more of a, of a regular thing that we see these, the, the, you know, the government releasing these... Um, themselves these ufo uh, images i wonder are people getting a little bit carried away as to what this means do we have to wait with a bit of caution before 
jump into conclusions on what, on what that would mean. Yeah, the U.S. government, I can't speak for other governments, but the U.S. government is profoundly inefficient and incompetent in so many ways that it's easier for me to believe that we've been visited by aliens than it is for me to believe that we've been visited by aliens, but the government has kept it a secret from everybody else in the world. Or that aliens are visiting only in restricted military airspace and showing up in front of F-18 pilots, fighter pilots. It's like, how about the rest of the world? Why are the aliens only visiting the U.S. Navy? Right? What? So there's a lot that just doesn't make sense here in what's going on. And we are in a position to crowdsource any alien invasion at all. There are three billion smartphones in the world, each with a high-resolution camera and video. You think if aliens are going to land, somebody's not going to capture that? Really? Okay, well, the aliens are just avoiding us, and they only want to reveal themselves to the U.S. military. Okay. All right. That's what you want me to believe. Oh, you want me to believe that Area 51 is top secret and that the janitor doesn't think to send out a selfie with the alien. Okay. Oh, by the way, the janitor would lose his job overnight, but become the most famous janitor there ever was in the history of the world for obtaining the first ever released photo of an alien. So I'm just not convinced of what all that people are declaring about UFOs being aliens visiting from another planet. And when I saw on the news the other week this idea of of, of sending a, a message to, you know, oh, out there to let let any just other recently in the news, yeah, yeah, to let them know where we are. Part of me was filled. Obviously, I think that's going to have no effect. Um, you know, if I was putting my money <laughs> on it, obviously. But part of me was like, that makes me a little bit anxious. I, I don't think that's such a good idea. What what does that leave you feeling? Well, in the spirit of your sentiment. Uh, none of us would walk out into the street and hand our email address to a total stranger. And that's a total stranger who's the same species as you are. Mm. <laughs> right? So, because you, you fear that it'll get abused, that whatever. Or, 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 your, or your home address. You just wouldn't do this in the interest of safety and privacy. So, in that spirit, it is odd that anyone would want to give the return address to aliens. That's just a little odd. However, we've already done that, and we've been doing it for 80 years. 80 years. Television signals from the dawn of that medium. Television signals do not get trapped within our atmosphere. They only go in straight lines. So the one straight lines near the horizon, you receive them in your television. Others go straight up into the sky, and they travel at the speed of light. We have an 80 light year radius radio bubble expanding at one light year per year carrying information about civilization as portrayed in pop culture television so it will have news you know maybe some newsreels maybe but those were i don't know how common they were in the era of television um the united states had very early television programming so, um, not all of which 
would I want to be the representative model of what civilization is like here on Earth? But nonetheless, we've already advertised our location. Our radio footprint from Earth is the loudest radio signal in the entire solar system. So if someone has a radio telescope and they beam it and they aim it towards us, the sun will be there as a signal, but so will Earth. And rocky planets are not supposed to be giving off radio signals. So there must be something going on. So and we haven't been invaded yet, so I'm, I'm, I'm cool about this, I think. <laughs> oh, by the way, that 80 light year radius bubble has already washed over dozens. I forgot the last count, but I think it's dozens of exoplanets that have been discovered planets orbiting other stars so uh yeah this would be fun to see how all this all this plays out in the coming years and decades so just two quick questions before you leave then a couple of months ago i put a video up on youtube on this channel about the the billionaire space race and i was hit with comments telling me that they didn't even go to space. And then in the comments, people were arguing, yes, they went to space. No, they didn't go to space. They went this high, that high. Can I get Neil deGrasse Tyson to weigh in and uh, clear this up for us? Did, <laughs> did did Jeff Bezos actually go to space or did he just go for a pretty high plane ride? Okay, so um, it just depends on what you mean by space, mm. okay? So there's something called the Kármán line where is it a Hungarian born American uh, astronomer, physicist, who thought to himself, in broad daylight, we have the sun in the sky, and you look up, it's a blue sky, right? Well, what makes the sky blue? Well, that's sunlight scattered into the air, preferentially scattering blue and allowing red, orange, yellow, amber to come through. That's why sunsets are so spectacular. The blueness of the night sky is especially deep, and the redness of the sun is especially strong. Because when the sun is low on the horizon, it's going through much more atmosphere than if it's directly overhead. So, because when you're on that angle, there's like the curve of the air, it's going through multiples of what would be the same as coming straight through the top of the atmosphere. Okay, so. Um, he thought to himself, there's got to be some elevation above Earth's surface where there's not enough air molecules to scatter the sunlight. And at that altitude, the blue sky dissolves, goes away, and all you see are stars and the dark night sky at the same time that you see the sun. This came to be known as the Kármán line. And that became the operational definition of space. So he didn't give an exact number, but we knew it was a number. It was somewhere between sort of 80 and 100 kilometers up. Okay. And so in Europe, they said 100 kilometers, that's a nice round number. Let's just declare it to be 100 kilometers. Mm. Okay. The 80, uh, it, was, it might have been 70 or something, is closer to. 50 miles, okay, in American speak. By the way, we got that from you guys over there in the UK, this mile thing. So don't, don't, don't look at me high and mighty. So, <laughs> like you like you're got the metric high, high seat there. So, so uh, point is, the, 
it, there is no exact line. It's some place in there. Mm-hmm. It's a very sloppy transition. So anywhere between 50 and 60 miles, between like 80 and, and 100 kilometers, would be fine. Bezos and Branson went above those two different Carmen lines, but counted as the same idea. Okay? They both went above those lines. Elon Musk sent people into orbit way higher than the Carmen line. Yeah. Okay? Three or four times higher. Okay. So, here's the problem with the Carmen line. If the Earth's atmosphere were half as thick, Carmen line would be half as high up. If Earth's atmosphere were one-tenth as thick, Carmen line would be only one-tenth as high up. Instead of 100 kilometers, it'd be 10 kilometers. Go up 10 kilometers, you're in space, by the Carmen line definition. Wait, suppose Earth had no atmosphere. Oh my gosh, then just standing on its surface by Carmen line rules, you'd be in space. So a Carmen line definition is a little bit odd because it defines space not by something inherent about space, but by something inherent about Earth's atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fine. All counted, if you take a schoolroom globe about a foot across and ask how high above the schoolroom globe did all these people go? That's a, ni- a nice question to ask. All right. Branson, Branson and Bezos went the thickness of two dimes yeah. above the surface. And Elon Musk went one centimeter mm. above the surface. Okay. They went higher than the International Space Station, by the way, which is like less than a centimeter up. So here you have a schoolroom globe, and everybody's, let's go into space. And that is just sitting right above Earth's surface. As an astrophysicist, to me, going into space means you're going somewhere, the moon, Mars, and beyond. Yeah. Well, there we are. We, we've got the, we've got the uh, big opinion to add into the hot debate in the, t- in the comments. Well, no, I didn't. I, I, did I express an opinion? All I'm saying no, is, no, straight if back. you're going to go with a Carmen line, be ready for the fact that if Earth's atmosphere thins, you just walking to the top of a mountain might count as being in space. Yeah. Okay? So just be aware of that before you jump on it and how you're doing it. For me... I want to do something more than boldly go where hundreds have gone before. Okay? Fantastic. Send me someone someplace far. (laughs) Well, before you go then, um, you mentioned the man himself, Elon. He's just bought Twitter, or he's in the process of buying Twitter. Do you see that as a good thing, a bad thing, or it doesn't really affect you? Yeah, I don't, you know, I mean, since when does anyone really care who owns any of this stuff? Mm. Right, we care about him because we know him personally. How many, how many corporate owners do any of us know about anything? Okay, so what I would say is, um, if you want to think of him as the devil, then he's the devil you know. All right, how about all the devils that run corporations that you don't know, that are holding the strings, the puppet strings, on what they do and how they do it and what they do to the environment and how they so. So I think Elon is under higher scrutiny simply because he's known by all these other means. But otherwise, it's fine. He's a new owner of Twitter. You know, I hope it makes him money. All right. 
or, or maybe he's doing it just for entertainment value because he doesn't spend much money on advertising. He just takes out a tweet and everybody retweets it on their own when he has a new model, a new car model that he's about to release or a new rocket launch that's about to go. So it's probably a wise, a tactical decision with regard to his uh, public profile. But otherwise, no, I don't have much, I'm, you know. People say, oh, plus, why are they spending money in space? When they, you know, they're billionaires. There's a lot of other things they could be spending money on that are less interesting than going into space. Like they could be competing for who has the biggest yacht. Mm. All right. Is that, you know, just be glad it's at least something that's advancing science and technology. And with Twitter, we'll see. And I'm talking about SpaceX and, and yeah. Tesla, of course. With Twitter, we'll see. Maybe there'll be no difference. I, I don't know. He hasn't told me. <laughs> well, Welcome to the Universe in 3D is available now. I'll leave all the links in the description below. Neil deGrasse Tyson, thank you so much for joining me on the free. Excellent. Podcast. I just want to add that the, there's a welcome to the universe.net where we have the whole series of Welcome to the Universe books, including, of course, the 3D one. And if you get the book, I've, all the captions to each image, I've, I've actually narrated. So there's a bonus section there where you can watch it. And then I use my my planetarium voice to, to narrate. <laughs> and and so, uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So thanks for the shout out. Well, thank you so much. That'll all be in the description below. And uh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, sir. And enjoy the rest of your busy media day. Oh, imagine. yeah, it is. It is. Thank you. Thanks for that interest. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And if you wanted to watch these podcasts in video format, including this one, then head over to youtube.com forward slash Freedom Pact, where all these episodes are available in video format as well as little bite-sized highlights and clips of our best bits that appear through our feed. That is youtube.com forward slash Freedom Pact. Subscribing to us on YouTube is the number one way you can help support the show. And also, leaving a five-star rating review on Spotify and iTunes really, really helps us grow the show and reach out and get these amazing guests for you. So if you were to leave a five-star written and rated review on iTunes or Spotify, I would appreciate that so, so much. You would be helping us out as well as checking us out on YouTube. This is a free show. It will always be a free show, but those are just some easy ways you can help us out. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Freedom Pact podcast, and I truly hope we'll see you again on the next one. Thank you for listening.